0: This is The Bible Book Club, where each episode we dive deep into the only book written 2,000 years ago that can still change your life today. Welcome to the club! Hey, if you've been enjoying The Bible Book Club and listening to these Leviticus episodes drop each week, you may enjoy also binging The Bible Book Club. And if you didn't start with us in Genesis, You can go back and you can binge Genesis and Exodus, and then you'll be caught up on Leviticus. So that can kind of fill in your week if you're looking for something um, later in the week besides the Mondays that drop for Leviticus. Anyway, last episode in chapter 19, we got into the laws for moral purity, or also called holy living. These included everything from honoring your parents to don't cheat or lie or steal. Some of them were pretty much like, duh, (laughs) and other ones were a little more interesting. But the bottom line was love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule, because God's premise for these laws was just love. And then we also got into chapter 20, which was painful, and it covered all the penalties that occur when you break a command. The consequences were tough, and many required death by various different methods. And so just be encouraged now, because
1: now that we're through 19 and 20, you're almost done with Leviticus. I know. We are closing in. Chapter 19 and 20 in the last episode completed our circuit of all the purity laws. Remember, we did purity, and then we did atonement, and then we came back to purity. So we're done. With purity, In this episode, we're going to move down our outline and once again delve back into the priesthood, which we covered on our way to purity in the beginning. And I want to say that I've experienced the word purity in a different
0: oh, way totally! studying this. yeah, Even being aware while we're singing songs in church on Sunday, whenever they say something about pure, mm-hmm. I'm like... I'm experiencing this different now because I understand really what it
1: means to be pure. Well, it's mentioned, God. you know, being clean or unclean, which is the purity theory there, um, it's mentioned a lot in the New Testament. And I'm the same way. It didn't resonate to me like it is now when I hear it in the New Testament. I go, oh, well, the the Jews would have really known what that meant. Whereas it, it just doesn't, it, we didn't get the whole picture. Yeah, it's really fun. So in this episode, we're going to move down our online and once again, delve back into the priesthood. The first time we covered the priesthood prior to the atonement, the focus was on the priest's ordination, what they wore, what they had to do to be ordained, all that stuff. Now in chapters 21 through 25, we're going to focus on on the priest's qualifications, what they need to do to be holy so that they can serve as priests for this nation, Israel. Central to the qualifications is reverence for God's holy things and holy times. We talked about that a lot in the past. I think it was in Exodus. Why? Because by respecting God's holy things and his holy times, they're showing reverence to God himself. The Israelites' reverence for God sets them apart from the world as his holy people. Without it, they wouldn't be his people. And these commands set the priests apart as people held to an even higher standing. They're set aside as servants in God's holy house, the tabernacle, and as models for the Israelites of ritual and moral purity. So they have to set the tone for the and people. And that continues to be true even in the New Testament.
0: There are some things in Paul's letters, I think they're Paul's letters, where it says teachers and pastors- Elders, Are decants. held to a higher standard.
1: Yes, exactly. To whom much is given, much is expected. If you're given leadership, you're expected to be held to higher accountability. All right, so here we go. The laws for priests qualifications. These are commands for the priests themselves. Chapter 21 are the commands for priests to be holy. The first command I'm going to cover is for priests regarding mourning. Now, this is going to sound really weird. Like, why is that a big deal? Why do we have commands for priests regarding mourning? I'm going to explain it, but let's read it first. The
0: Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative, such as his mother or father or his son or daughter, his brother or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For her, he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. Priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beard Or cut their bodies. They must be holy to their God and must not profane the name of their God because they present the food offerings to the Lord, the food of their God. They
1: are to be holy. What does this have to do with anything? These are strange rules to us, but to the Israelites, these rules had a very clear message. You, priests of Israel, are not going to adopt the ways of the land you came from, Egypt. Or the land you are going to, Canaan. God is once again giving them rules to keep them from the temptation to sin. The first command that the priests cannot come in contact with dead bodies was protection from the temptation to adopt Egyptians' practices. The Egyptians believed in an afterlife and that the realm of the dead was holy. And that is why the dead body was precious. And they embalmed it for 70 days until mummified. So they were coming in contact with it for 70 days, this dead body, stuffing it full of stuff to keep it. You know, it's a big deal, these mummies. God was not going to have that. The priests were prohibited from even touching a dead body, let alone embalming it for days. And that's where God was so smart. He's like, I am closing the door on this one, like child sacrifice. Not having it. You can't even go near those dead bodies. He made it so extreme, the rule, that there would be no temptation for them to slip back to what they saw worshipped by the Egyptians, these
0: mummified bodies. That makes it makes it make a lot more sense, especially because today— we call the priest or the pastor when there's some event right. when somebody <laughs> right. is about to die or if somebody yeah. did die. You call your priest for comfort, for prayer, for all these things. But it was the opposite. And there was a purpose for right. that. It was just to make, right. set them apart and make sure they weren't participating in those kinds yeah, of rituals. This is
1: what I hear all the time when people are listening to Bible Book Club that they're like, oh, my gosh, it makes so much sense to me. It's making so much sense to me. Because when you open a chapter about the priest qualifications and it opens with something that seems so uncompassionate. Like, you can't go near your dead relatives. You can't mourn them. You know, you can't be in the same room as their body. It seems odd. But when you understand, it's because God didn't want them to worship mummification and, you know, the afterlife. It makes sense. So the second command regarding shaving hair and cutting themselves, contrast to pagan mourning practices that were taking place in Canaan at this time. And Canaan is where they're going. Um, So the people they are going to oust from the promised land, that they're going to end up being mixed in with, kind of, had this practice of cutting themselves and shaving their hair in designs. I don't really get it, but that's what they did. It, It says nothing about today's practices because today's practices are not tied to pagan ritual. But he didn't want the priest doing that um, when they entered Canaan, because then it would set it a bad example for the people and they would be led astray. And again, God's not having it. Having so he does make a few mourning exceptions. Touching a dead body was a seven-day process to purity. Remember, we covered that chapters ago, which meant that the priest was out of work. So that's why he doesn't want them getting involved in a lot of mourning also, because it would take them out of the tabernacle. Priests were not to become impure for anyone who dies except immediate family. Now, I'm not talking about the high priest here. I'm just talking about the general priest. Wives would have been considered a close relative, even though they're not blood related, because Genesis 2 states that they are bone of his bone. So it is, it is um, theorized that the wife, yes, they could have become unclean for her and mourned her. Um, however, her parents, her in, the in-laws, would not be considered close. So really, it was only your kids, your wife, your parents that a priest could become unclean for, and he would be out of work for seven days. Now, next, we're going to move into commands for
0: priests regarding marriage. Verse 7, they must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorce from their husbands because priests are holy to their God. Regard them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them
1: holy because I the Lord am holy, I who make you holy. To be holy, a priest must be selective in choosing a wife. The priest was to be a model of moral and ritual purity and his wife was also. Choosing a like-minded, faithful wife also helped ensure that the Levitical line of the priesthood remained focused and not influenced by sin. Also, remember, back in that day, there was no DNA testing. Oh, my gosh. There was no (laughs) DNA testing even a few years ago. So a wife who had been with another man, people got married faster then. So a wife who maybe Mm -hmm. had been in, you know, prior had been in prostitution or had been married to somebody else. Could have conceived by that man, and the child would grow up to be a priest, but not of a Levite father, and therefore, as a priest, would defile the tabernacle. Does that make sense? So, in those days, let's say you got divorced, and then a few um, weeks or months, you you got married again. They didn't really understand like when conception happened. They knew it was like a nine month deal, but exactly when they wouldn't be able to prove. Okay, well, now you're married to a Levite priest. Is this really his son or isn't it his son? Um, Think about that. (laughs) So just don't do it.
0: Don't do it. Don't do it.
1: All right. The next one is a command
0: for priests regarding their daughters. Verse 9. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father. She must be burned in
1: the fire. A priest's daughter had an elevated status of holiness and with that a responsibility. If she dishonors her mother and father by being promiscuous, she also dishonors his priestly holiness. He is different her father. He is set apart, and therefore she is too and must be an example. Therefore, not only is she stoned, which would have been the typical punishment for a promiscuous woman, but her body is also to be burned. Okay, moving on to commands for now. High priests, this isn't. The general priest, this is the one high priest. There's only one high priest at a time. So the high priest qualifications. The high priest are going to have higher standard because the high priest is the one, the one, who enters the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. So this is like the priest of the priests. This is as high as you get. Here are the commands for the high priest regarding mourning. Verse 10, the high
0: priest, the one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments must not let his hair become unkept or tear his clothes. He must not enter a place where there's a dead body. He must not make himself unclean even for his father or mother, nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the
1: Lord. All right, the high priest cannot come in contact with death, even for his father and mother. Now, there is no comment made about his wife, so we have to wonder, you know, if his wife died, could he go and mourn her? We saw, however, a very clear example of what happens when a high priest's child dies in episode five. The episode is called No Room for Error because two of Aaron, the high priest's son at the time, sons... Nadab and Abihu were sloppy in their priestly duties and were instantly consumed by fire. Aaron was obedient despite his grief and remained silent and still while his nephews carry his son's bodies out of the tabernacle and out of the camp. Aaron stayed at the entrance of the tabernacle, still on duty, still on the job as high priest, because becoming impure was not an option for the high priest. The reference about not leaving the sanctuary at the end of the verse Heather read does not mean that they the high priest lived in the tabernacle. It just means they couldn't leave if they were in service and become contaminated by mourning someone. The priests actually did live with their families. All right, moving on to the commands for a high priest regarding marriage. It gets a little more tough here to find a wife.
0: Verse 13, the woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people, so that he will not defile his offspring among his people. I
1: am the Lord who makes him holy. It's made clear here that the high priest's son would likely be the next high priest. Therefore, it was necessary that his wife be a virgin. To prove that this was actually a son, and there would be no question about who the father was, and that the Levitical line of the high priest was in fact from the line of Aaron and came from the tribe of Levi. Okay, here we go with the commands for high priests regarding eligibility for service in the tabernacle. Verse 16, the Lord said to Moses,
0: say to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand or who has a hunchback or a dwarf or who has any eye defect or who has a festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God, as well as the holy food. Yet, because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes him holy. So Moses told this to Aaron and his sons and
1: to all the Israelites. Levites who are blind, lame, disfigured, or deformed could not serve as priests. And, and this sounds harsh, but yeah. they have defects, and defects were a result of the fall. And remember, the fall is not of God. You know, yeah. he can't come in contact with that disorder. So the reason stated is in verse 23, because he, he would, if he were deformed or something, desecrate my sanctuary. This sounds harsh, but it is in keeping with God's design when you think about this. First, There's no room for error in the tabernacle. We discussed this when we talked about um, the sons, Aaron's sons, right? right. So if you tripped, stumbled, dropped anything sacred, you could die. (laughs) It was that fast you got burned up. A blind or physically handicapped person would be at high risk. They were not qualified for the job that required perfect execution. But then second, the tabernacle was modeled after the Garden of Eden. We read about the description of it and its furnishings in great detail in season two in Exodus. Remember, even the lampstand has like the trees and the almonds and, you know, everything was supposed to represent the garden. Like the garden, the tabernacle was to be the place where the Lord was present with the people. Therefore, it had to be a place of perfection like the garden. And those working in the tabernacle, the priest, must symbolize that perfection that once existed in the garden with Adam and Eve and will one day belong again to all who live with God in heaven. We started in perfection. We're working our way back. (laughs) Um, The exclusion from serving as a priest did not mean that God in any way Look down upon those who are blind or maimed. And there's a beautiful story about this with David and Mephibosheth um, that's going to come up in the future of the Old Testament. We're going to get to it. In verse 22 of this Leviticus chapter, God makes it clear that these priests, whether they were maimed or not, had a seat at the table of priests. God provides for their inclusion into the tabernacle courtyard and with their daily food provision as a member of the family of the tribe of Levi. They were still participants. They just could not enter the holy or most holy place. That makes sense? So He's not against these people. Mm -hmm. It's just that they don't represent what he needs in those holy places. Note this. The holiness of the priest's lives, both ritually and morally, was to be a picture to the Israelite people of the Lord's holiness. The picture of the priest's service should be so pure to the Israelite, so orderly, so lovely, so right that it creates in the people of Israel a longing, a hunger for a return to the garden, for the delight of walking with God every day instead of having to sacrifice and do all this other stuff, and to walk with him in order and perfection. A longing for the reversal of the fall, for the coming of that seed that we mentioned in Genesis, that seed of the woman that would defeat the serpent and restore the peace they lost in the garden. That seeking, that craving, that desiring all things God, that call to holiness, that sacrifices all else, even the right to display emotion over the loss of a loved one, was a high calling indeed. But it was an example to the Israeli people that God was worth it. The priests had a sacrificial living. It was their job. The question for us is, what is our job? Paul would say it was to be a living sacrifice. He said it this way in Romans 12:1 Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It was spelled out for them. For us, our true and proper worship is to be a living sacrifice. And through that, we learn his perfect will. Well, I was very convicted when I read this. I, I, I often grade myself. I love this. I have a habit tracker. I've talked about this. I like to grade myself. And on a scale of one to 10, I would give myself a pathetic four on the craving, desiring all things God. I know you very well, and I think you're being very hard on yourself. No, no. When I look at these priests and how they were, their whole job was a sacrificial living, it was all pointed towards God. I can't tell you that I spend very many seconds or minutes a day in that kind of desiring all things God. Now, on, I, I would be a five on the sacrifice side, a little bit higher, but not much. I need to ponder God's holiness a lot more, and I need to appreciate it, and I need to reverence it. And that was the whole point of these chapters, to revere God's holiness, to respect it, and to treat it, because this is my true and proper worship. Then I might be motivated to sacrifice more if I thought about it more. So, how can we become a living sacrifice, devoting our best in terms of time, energy, and resources to God? John the Baptist, referring to Jesus in John 3:29 said this, "That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less." How can we find joy sacrificing self and allowing Jesus to become the greatest priority in our life. That's the question.
0: I think it might have something to do with the pace of our lives. Yeah. I read a book once called The Unhurried Life. Mm. And it was all about how Jesus was not in a hurry. We're in a big hurry. Yeah. And that's just the pace of life today, certainly life in America regardless of where you're looking, listening to this, this may be the pace of life where Mm -hmm. you are. And that wasn't the example of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so I think your point that you're making, even though I still feel you're being harsh on yourself, is it's hard for us to live this life of constant just um, praise to God and constantly thinking about God and looking for ways to worship Mm -hmm. and sacrifice to Him because we have so much else to do. Yeah, And we need to spend that quiet time, get away, And pull away, which is what Jesus often did in the example of him when he would go away to quiet places. He often withdrew to lonely places Mm -hmm. and would pray sometimes for 40 days. Yeah, And it's hard for us to do that for 40 days, but it is a good example for us,
1: even if we do it for a little while. More than what we do now. And I think it's becoming more and more of a tr- distraction. Like you said, I think it's harder. If you're a Gen Zer out there and you're listening to us or even a millennial, it's probably harder for you than it was for me. Okay, moving from commands for priests to be holy to chapter 22, commands for priests regarding sacred offerings. So we're still talking to the priests. These are still commands for them, but we're moving from their qualifications to actually how they treat. The sacred offerings. The sacred offerings were various foods that have been given to the Lord. Therefore, the offerings must be treated with respect. They included the meat from all those animals and grain portions from the grain fellowship, purification, and reparation offerings. We've covered all those offerings, and we do have um, a show notes thing of them. But we're going to talk about them more in the future. And they could have also included the first fruits of oil, wine, and grain that were also offered. The Lord commanded that these offerings were exclusively set aside for the priests and their households. It was the way they lived. They worked in the tabernacle and not on the farm. Therefore, without this, they wouldn't have had food. Therefore, God provided for their daily living through these sacrifices. Now, parts of that were for the Lord, and we cover that again in some of the other laws, but a good portion of these sacrifices were the food for the priests. All right, so starting with commands for priests regarding making offerings. Chapter 22. The Lord said to
0: Moses, tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings the Israelites consecrate to me, so they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them for the generations to come, if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean and yet comes near the sacred offerings that the Israelites consecrate to the Lord, that person must be cut off from my presence. I am am the Lord. If a descendant of Aaron is def- has a defiling skin disease or a bodily discharge, he may not eat the sacred offerings until he is cleansed. He will also be unclean if he touches something defiled by a corpse or by anyone who has an emission of semen, or if he touches any crawling thing that makes him unclean, or any person who makes him unclean, whatever the cleanliness may be. The one who touches any such thing will be unclean till evening. He must not eat any of the sacred offerings unless he has bathed himself with Water. When the sun goes down, he will be clean, and after that he may eat the sacred offerings, for they are his food. He must not eat anything found dead or torn by wild animals and so become unclean through it. I am the Lord. The priests are to perform my service in such a way that they do not become guilty and die for treating it with contempt. I am the Lord
1: who makes them holy. So there's that that scary warning again, you know, do this or die. But to offer on behalf of the people, the priest could not be unclean. And by being clean, he was treating the offering with respect. No impure priest can eat a sacred offering. So even after offering it, if he was an impure, he couldn't eat it. Priests must also not eat animals found dead. The consequence for disobeying this command is that the priest will be cut off or at the least fired from his job as priest or at the most exiled from Israel or die. So we don't know what that cut off means, but again, at the least he's fired, at the most he dies. All right, moving on to commands for priests' household regarding eating sacred food. So these are the rules for if you live with the priest, Here's what you can eat. Verse 10 No one outside a priest's
0: family may eat the sacred offering, nor may the guest of the priest or his hired worker eat it. But if a priest buys a slave with money, or if the slaves are born in his household, they may eat his food. If a priest's daughter marries anyone other than a priest, she may not eat any of the sacred contributions. But if the priest's daughter becomes a widow or is divorced yet has no children and she returns to live in her father's household as in her youth, she may eat her father's food. No unauthorized person, however, may eat it. Anyone who eats a sacred offering by mistake must make restitution to the priest for the offering and add a fifth of value to it. The priest must not desecrate the sacred offerings the Israelites present to the Lord by allowing them to eat the sacred offerings and so bring upon them the guilt requiring payment. I am the Lord who makes them holy.
1: Okay, I didn't read anything about this, but I'm thinking I would want to be in the tribe of Levi because I don't think the mothers and daughters had to cook very much. (laughs) <laughs> because their husbands were the barbecue you masters. You love to cook. <laughs> you just don't want to have to be so thinking, busy. You know. You know. They just they they got bread from the uh, the grain offerings. You know. They had the. the table of we're going to get into it well they might have cooked sides the priests were just cooking the meat and the the bread (laughs) but i guess you couldn't have a lot of guests over from other tribes because if you're from other tribes you can't eat at my table (laughs) everything here is holy Um, but maybe this is why again daughters of priests and wives it was an elevated thing you were probably a really big deal which kind of would have been cool okay so who could eat and who could not no one outside a priest's household no hired aliens no daughter if she married a non priest. So if your daughter marries outside of the Levite tribe, she can't come for Sunday supper unless she packs her own lunch. Um, but well, yes, they could go over to her house. Good question. Probably. It didn't say anything. I didn't read anything didn't about say they that. Couldn't. Right. It's just that they're provided for out of the good stuff, those unblemished lambs. <laughs> okay. Yes, however. Two slaves and their families could eat. And daughters who return home. So, if a daughter um, marries a non Levite and then he dies and she is a widow and she has to return to her father's house, um, he's responsible for her. So, in essence, Almost everyone whose life depended on a priest was fed from this table. Yeah, you would always be cared for. You would always be cared for, which is super cool. Um, And really kind of speaks to us today, you know, how are you caring for your pastor? Because if we don't tithe, our pastors don't get paid. And, um, you know, we have to provide for their daily living Mm -hmm. too. All right. Commands for priests and the people to respect the Lord's holy things and most specifically what the people offered as a sacrifice. Verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, "Speak to
0: Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, if any of you, whether an Israelite or a foreigner residing in Israel, presents a gift for a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a free-will offering, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf." Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. You may, however, present as a free will offering an ox or a sheep that is deformed or stunted, but it will not be accepted in fulfillment of a vow. You must not offer to the Lord an animal whose testicles are bruised, crushed, torn, or cut. You must not do this in your own land, and you must not accept such animals from the hand of a foreigner and offer them as the food of your God. They will not be accepted
1: on your behalf because they were deformed and have defects. So in the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, you must be thoughtful and careful to select the best. We've talked about this before. The animal cannot be blind, deformed, maimed, and other things. God is clearly drawing a parallel here to the qualifications for a priest because both lists of qualifications start with blindness and end with damaged testicles, whether it's for the priest who serves in the tabernacle or the animal that is sacrificed in the tabernacle. They have to be um, unblemished. But that was a rule for anyone.
0: Nobody really was supposed to give the blemished animal, right?
1: Correct. And that's why yeah. this—they're saying he's talking to the priest here, and he's saying, "Hey, if anyone if brings they bring you, it, just it's not allowed. It, it's rejected. Yeah, and it's not allowed. And maybe they couldn't afford an unblemished one, then they need to drop down to a pigeon, <laughs> right? Those were all <laughs> those we rules that were referred. That. And yes. that kind of goes back to
0: my favorite subject—the heart. What mm-hmm. is your heart? attitude towards this sacrifice that you're giving and we can look at that today and ask our own selves this like susan just mentioned the tithe what is your heart attitude towards that if you were at back then presenting a blemished animal it was like almost like cheating it was like well i I can't really use this one anyway i can't it's like it's like not the best of what you have Mm -hmm. it's that's not even the term sacrifice that's not really even a sacrifice to give something that you were going to throw away anyway right and so are you doing that with your offering are Mm -hmm. you presenting your first your best or are you just kind of giving god what was the leftover that maybe wouldn't even have been used anyway because sure that would be easy to give
1: it's like it's like god saying is here you're not respecting him you're not revering him and honoring him in the way he should and yeah like you said that's a hard thing so um it was super important to god okay Moving on. Verse 26. The Lord said to Moses, when a calf, a
0: lamb, or a goat is born, it is to remain with his mother for seven days. From the eighth day on, it will be acceptable as a food offering presented to the Lord. Do not slaughter a cow or a sheep
1: and its young on the same day. There is this focus with God and this directing the Israelites to think about um, the promise of God to fill the earth and the promise of That was in Genesis. And then the promise to Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. There is this connection. He finishes both the the description of the qualification for the animal and this description of the qualifications for the priest with they can't have damaged testicles, which is kind of weird. Like of all the parts of the body, do we have to bring up that? But that points back to Genesis when from the seed there's going to come this Savior. And it also points back to Genesis in that he wants the animals and the people to fill the earth. You know, nowhere else does anybody ever—we all point to the heart. We don't point to the testicles. But to them, it carried forward this, this is how you're going to have children. This is how, you know, you're going to have animals and flocks and food. Okay, so I covered the mother that she gets seven days. Then it also—they also mentioned in the commentaries— it was a, um act of compassion for the animal's family that it wouldn't be wiped out in one day by killing both the mother and the child animal on the same day, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, very sweet. I'm an animal lover, so I like that one. Yeah.
0: Let's keep reading. Verse 29. When you sacrifice a thank offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It must be eaten that same day. Leave none of it till morning. I am the Lord. Keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who
1: made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Okay, I think we said, I am the Lord. You read there at least three times. Yeah, but you told us before that that's like it's him so important. an explanation point <laughs>
0: on it. Like, this is a big deal.
1: It's a big deal. And if you're like me, you might be thinking, how can there be any more for God to say about sacrificing? We've talked about it so much. And yet, throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and for the rest of the Old Testament, God is going to continue to chip away at this concept from a different angle Every time. Sacrificing is clearly of great importance to God. And yet, the practice of sacrificing grain and animals is obsolete, gone. What has replaced it? For the Israelite, sacrificing came to an end when the temple was destroyed. The term sacrifice comes from a Latin word meaning to make something. The Hebrew equivalent is korban, which means something brought near to the altar. By bringing an Israelite close to the altar, the sacrifice or korban was bringing them close to God. After the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD, a long time ago, Jews stopped offering sacrifices because there was no temple or altar for the sacrifice, instead, they began to offer prayers. The rabbis taught that people could become closer to God with the words of their mouths rather than with physical sacrifices. Now, for the Christian, the sacrificial laws that we have just read were fulfilled with Jesus's death on the cross. The role of the unblemished animal that we just read about and the unblemished priest in the old testament are fused together and fulfilled by Jesus in the new testament as the sacrificial lamb Jesus's blood is the perfect atonement for sin as a high priest Jesus is the perfect unblemished replacement for Aaron but with greater access to God as our mediator no more sacrificing No more high priests from the tribe of Levi. In Hebrews 7.23, Paul explains the new covenant plan like this. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest's men in all their weakness but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who's been made perfect forever hopefully like me this is a bible bender for you and
0: cements the reason that the lord led you to the bible book club so that now you can fully understand what you've been reading all this time in the new testament and how it's linked to the old oh great recap